Welcome to Clarity, hosted by me, Larry McCann. Are we recording yet? What do you mean is the light on? We're recording. I'm just looking at the microphone. I don't see a light. We're rolling. You should start your segment. Hi, I'm Larry, and welcome to Larry Talk. Are we really calling it that? We couldn't come up with a better name than Larry Talk? Just off the top of my head. Ah, Singularity, Staten Island Larry, Clarity, Clarity, that's a good name. Let's go with that. It gets the point across. Today, we're going to be discussing several issues specific to women in the entertainment industry. We have a guest coming by later, but first, we're going to take some calls. Do we have a caller on the line? Larry, you gotta warn us. I swear, my producers, I don't even know what you're being paid for. You're not paying me. <laughs> what do you mean you're doing it pro bono? Yeah. What, are you an idiot? Look, just put the caller on the line. We'll talk about this later. Okay, Larry. You got somebody on the line or not? Yes, we do. G- great, put them through. Where are they calling from? What's the name? Uh, I, I don't know. You ever done this before? This is getting ridiculous. Okay, sorry. I'm sorry, Larry. Uh, Josh from Maine. Josh from Maine. Welcome to Clarity. You're our first caller. Immortalized and whatnot. Hi. You have a question, I assume? Uh, yeah, I do. Like, this show's about women, right? You're hitting the nail on the head, Josh. So why is your producer and you, like, guys? Josh, that's a great question. Asked a little inarticulately, but I can't be too choosy right now, huh? I guess not. The point isn't to tell women what to do or how to fix the situation. It's to encourage dialogue and understand things from that perspective. So in that context, I'm quite useful. Well, but don't you think you could get into a trap where you come off like you're mansplaining everything? That's another good point. Seems like a real risk to me. It's definitely something I've considered. First of all, Josh, I'm going to ask you to define mansplaining to me. Oh, I don't know. I think it... So it's got to be a guy and a girl, right? Yeah. The guy's telling the girl something she probably already knows and saying it in a patronizing manner. I think you got the gist of it there. I could quibble the semantics, but let's not get into that right now. First of all, I think defining terms is an important part of any conversation. It's very easy to get off on the wrong foot when you're trying to say the same things but using different language. Vocabulary is everything. I think I could agree with that. That makes a lot of sense to me. So if we agree upon the language, what do you think the next step is, Josh? How do we continue this conversation? Well, I think... Not interrupting. Courtesy. You're getting all my points. This is fantastic. I'm really appreciating your input. So, courtesy in a conversation isn't just tolerating the other person's opinion and waiting for your turn to talk. It's actually engaging their ideas and question them. You don't have to just go with the flow. You can express discontent, ask questions, You just gotta be involved and show that you care about it. Well, what are some ways I can do that? Like, eye contact or something? Certainly when you're in person. I mean, we're on the radio. Larry, this is a podcast. What do you mean we're... It's on a computer. We're gonna have a real long talk about this, Will. This is just getting untenable. 
Anyways, where was I? I lost my train of thought. Thanks a lot, producer. Oh, conversations and etiquette. So, eye contact is certainly one way to show that you're engaged. But I would say the easiest way is to actually be engaged. I know that sounds trite and simple, but think about it. If someone's trying to discuss something with you, just discuss it. It's not a big deal, but it seems like no one wants to listen anymore. You know, that reminds me of this conversation I had. Josh, that's another fantastic point. I can't thank you enough. You're really making my job easy here. Interviews are an art, and I'm fucking Da Vinci at this shit. You gotta make your guests feel comfortable so they bring down their walls. And I'm not talking about literal masonry. I'm talking about their guarded nature. You see, most people don't want to talk about anything uncomfortable. They don't want to share their secrets, and they don't want to say anything that can be misconstrued. You mean like taking something out of context? Josh, I'm going to have to ask you not to interrupt me. I'm going to give you this one warning. After that, this interview is over. But as to your point, yes, exactly. They don't want anything they say used against them or their words twisted around for some kind of media story. And you can understand that. I'm sympathetic. It's easy when you're having a long conversation to maybe say some words you don't mean or take an opinion on something without all the facts. That's understandable. We're all humans. That's the point here. We're fostering an environment where we can actually break through on these issues. And again, the first step is listening to whoever you're conversing with. Uh, Mr. Larry, could I get a point in? Josh, you're just being rude at this point. I don't understand it. I show you all the hospitality of a gracious host. And you just can't let me talk. It's like it's gotta be Josh, 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 Josh. This call is over. Never call again. I, I wasn't trying to be rude. I, I I'm sure the lines are blowing up. Let's get the next caller. I'll try to find someone, Larry, but... We're not even live. This is being pre-recorded. It's a podcast. This amateur hour is inexcusable. I didn't sign up for this. Please excuse the technical difficulties, but I think we managed to find another caller. Hi, I'm Jessica. Pleased to meet you, Jessica. Where are you calling from? Oh, I live in upstate New York. I've never done this before. This is very exciting. You're not alone. I'm feeling ecstatic. We have our first female caller. This is a big moment for all of us. See, this is where the communication starts. Yeah. How is the weather right now? You got any of them autumn colors out? We do. I hear it's just beautiful, stunning, gorgeous. Well, the foliage is delightful, but that's really not why I called. I think you're bringing up some important issues, at least from what I was introduced to by your producer. But I am a little concerned that if everyone working on the show is a man, how are you going to create an environment that's open to women? You bring up a great point. And I think Josh touched on it before he became unreasonable. But let me elaborate. The point isn't just to create a safe space. It's to do that and to encourage dialogue among different kinds of people. I want to hear from the whole world. I need to meet people with a different perspective. Because they can educate me and everyone else on pertinent issues facing us all. 
that, that sounds great, but it really doesn't answer my question. How are you going to make these women comfortable when they're surrounded by men? Again, Jessica, I can't thank you enough. You're bringing up so many important topics. For starters, my workspace is a zero-toleration zone for sexual harassment against any group. No strikes. You do it. You're gone. You're out of here. But more importantly, I'm going to be checking in with you, the audience, to make sure that I'm upholding the standards and commitment to this message. Women, I'm never going to drown you out. I'm never going to demean you. I'm here to listen, and I'm here to understand. That all sounds fantastic, but you can understand a little bit of skepticism, right? Of course. I mean, women have heard this for a long time. That's true. That's 100% true, and I fully agree. I'm saying we're turning this around. The ship is headed in the right course from now on. We're going to hold ourselves accountable, just like how Hollywood is cleaning out its dirty, skeleton-riddled closet. And you don't think they're just sweeping all the dirt under the rug? They may be. That's a good point, too. But it's up to us to hold everyone accountable. We can't say we're going to do it and then relax. We all got to work extra hard to create the environment that we all want. Introduce Miranda. I apologize. You're gonna have to help me with the last name. My producer apparently didn't read the job description. Uh, it's Sajak, like Pat Sajak. Thank you. I appreciate that, and I apologize again. How would you define yourself, career-wise? Career-wise, I would define myself as a director who sometimes produces and occasionally writes. Clarity is an important part of any conversation. I'd like to ask you, in your own words, to define feminism. I go by the classic definition. It's an ideological striving for equality among genders. So for me, it's not the idea of women being better than men or men being less than women in any way, but it's working on issues that impact both men and women in negative ways to try and find equality and ultimately a better world for both genders that we currently acknowledge, I should say, since I believe there are probably more than two. Are you a feminist? Yes. Can you think of any common misconceptions concerning feminism? I think one of the most common ones is the uh, retro idea of feminists as like all bra-burning lesbians, <laughs> you know. Uh, I think that those two are pretty typical ideas of what feminism is, or, or the idea that it in some way discriminates against men, which I think may even be a misconception that even just comes from the way that language works and the idea that the term feminism and female, you know, kind of have the same root. So, you know, I think a lot of those things are rooted in the idea that people who are feminists are are humorless and are out for themselves and are power-hungry women and don't know their place or whatever it may be, when for me, I think that... Uh, <laughs> My co-workers are a nightmare. What can I say? <laughs> I mean, um, <laughs> they're adorable, though. That's true. 
So for me, I think that feminism may even attract some of these misconceptions just based on the word itself. When I think about feminism and when I think about feminism at its best, the way that you would think of like any ideology at its best or any positive ideology at its best is really a striving for things to be better for everybody. So when I think about feminist activism that kind of counters some of that misconception, I think about things like feminists who are working to help lower the amount of male suicide, or I think about feminists who are working for men to have parental leave. I think about feminism as something that really encompasses making the world better for everybody. Fantastic, fantastic. I appreciate that. Your trouble, you're out of here, you're gone. You mentioned that feminism doesn't have to be humorless. Who's the funniest feminist that you can name? Um, right now, there's a couple that I think of off the top of my head. I think Sam B is a pretty hilarious feminist. I think that Ava DuVernay is actually quite a funny feminist. I think Margaret Cho is a hilarious feminist. These are not necessarily all people known for their comedy per se, but they're people that I think of as being quite funny. Off of the podcast, My Favorite Murder, I think Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark are really funny feminists. I think Ali Wong is hilarious. I could go down a very long list of comedians who are also women and feminists. I think there are a lot of great ones out there, and the vast majority of feminists I can think of are actually pretty funny. Is there anyone you can think of who identifies themselves as a feminist but actually puts forth a damaging message? That's a really good question. There certainly are people who do that. Specific names aren't coming to mind just by virtue of the fact that I try not to affiliate with people who I find damaging to an ideology that I think is really important. Maybe Lena Dunham or something might be somebody who presents herself as a feminist but has obviously had some problematic issues regarding race and sexuality that have perhaps not (laughs) furthered the cause in the way that she might want to. But I think that that's tough because it's hard to be perfect all the time. You know, I'm not making any excuses for her. I think that she's certainly a problematic figure. But one thing that I certainly take from feminism and that I appreciate about it and really any sort of socially conscious ideology is the idea that we're all learning and growing and trying to be better. And that's sort of the goal. So people who identify as feminists who I may not consider feminists, if they're not fighting for Black female empowerment, if they're not fighting for trans women's empowerment, if they're not fighting for men's empowerment in, in that way too, then to me, that's not real feminism. So I, I wouldn't necessarily consider them as such, even though they might present as such. Are there any things you can think of that men can do to be an ally? Sure. I mean, you know, I talked about some of the ways that feminism seeks to help men, and I know that it can be easier to become part of any system if you feel as though it's benefiting you. So I would definitely say things like getting involved with a Big Brother program to help a young guy who might be in need of a good role model. I think that's a really positive feminist act that a man can take. I also think working against unfair incarceration, working for parental leave for men, men should have those same rights as women, becoming involved in ways that can help your friends and your family and the women of the world. I think there's a lot men can do for feminism, and I think that there are a lot of really great male feminists out there doing that work. Anyone come to mind? Recently, I was actually thinking of Ryan Coogler, a filmmaker in Hollywood who has consistently hired women behind the camera on most of his projects and, you know, really is active about it and outspoken about it. And Paul Feig, for some of the same reasons, I'm very immersed in the Hollywood world. So those are going to be people that I go to just in my head. 
but that are men that have really striven hard to make their work representative or to make sure that women are included at high positions of power and that they have a voice at the table. So that's something that I think is important. You mentioned representation, but that representation's not always positive. Can you define the Bechtel test? The Bechdel test, which was coined in, I believe, a comic by Alison Bechdel, is essentially a, a kind of a tongue-in-cheek test, but a test nonetheless for media, particularly movies, you know, asking, does this film have more than one woman character? Are they named? <laughs> Are they not just like waitress or secretary? Um, you know, do they actually have names? Do they speak to each other and not just to the men in the film? And do they speak to each other about something that is not a man? So, you know, it could be women discussing their grocery list, but that would pass the Bechdel test, essentially. Are there any recent movies or shows that pass it? Sure. The Good Fight passes it, as did The Good Wife. I want to say that Three Billboards probably does. I know that Frances McDormand's character talks to a number of women throughout the film. I'm trying to think what else. Uh, Lady Bird, for sure, passes the Bechdel test. There's a bunch of stuff out there this year. It's been actually not not the worst year for it, especially some of the higher-level Oscar-y movies have been pretty good about it. Can you name any shows or movies that appear to be progressive, but actually put forth a damaging message specifically towards women? I think that there's a lot of those. I don't know if I necessarily watch them (laughs) and try to avoid that material, but I did hear that there was this new one on Netflix. I might be getting the title wrong. I want to say it's called Godless or something like that. And it's allegedly about a world inhabited primarily by women. But apparently women only get like 30% of the dialogue in at least the first couple of episodes. So it's one of those where it's like, if this is your message, then why are you presenting it this way? And I'm not sure how that's working. I haven't seen the show. I might be completely messing up what it's about, (laughs) but I just remember reading about it on Twitter like two or three days ago, so it's sort of fresh in my mind. I think that the idea of a damaging message to women is is sort of an interesting idea in itself because it's sort of malleable. It's one of those ideas that's hard to define because different women will think of something different as damaging than other women might. The artist Madonna has often been really controversial and has been seen as dragging back the feminist movement or whatever because she was so sexual in the 90s. Whereas some women may see her as empowering for kind of owning her sexuality. So I think, like we talked about earlier with feminists who may not necessarily be feminist or may be more damaging than helpful, the idea that a woman should be a certain way, I think, can in itself be its own damaging message. For me, I would say that stuff that I find damaging or stuff that I find personally hurtful tends to be stuff where it's the same thing we've seen a million times. The wife tragically waiting for her husband to return from war, and that's all she gets to do in the movie. Or it's the girlfriend or the daughter or whatever who's in distress and the man has to come save her, and that's sort of the whole narrative. And that's the kind of stuff that I find really upsetting because I feel like we should have moved beyond it to the point where all characters, whether they're male or female, secondary or major in any project, should feel as though they're three-dimensional and have their own internal lives and goals and journeys. And that just speaks to complex writing and writing complex characters. And so I think that when we talk about stuff where it's purporting to be feminist, but it's actually damaging, I think that's a lot of media because I think a lot of media thinks, okay, well, if we write a character and the lead is female, and that's automatically feminist, and that's not always the case. How much influence do you think media has on younger generations in terms of informing their sense of gender and identification? 
I think a lot. This is something that I look to as anecdotal and it may not be the greatest example, but I think about as a kid when I was coming of age. A lot of childhood games that my friends and I would play would be like Star Wars or Ninja Turtles or whatever. And it would be like, well, the guys all got the lightsabers and the size and the katanas and they got to be the fighters and the badasses and they got to be the heroes. And the woman would always be April or Leia. You know, she would always be the princess or April's a little bit more active because she gets to be a reporter, but still the woman in distress. And I think the fact that art has that kind of an influence, that people want to become those characters, children subconsciously take on those characters in their play, or consciously. And we do the same thing every Halloween, and we do the same thing, you know, throughout life. You'll hear people dropping lines from movies or TV left and right. So I think that art, particularly art that influences on a major cultural level, has a really deep impact on culture and on people how people see themselves. And we certainly see it with things like Bend It Like Beckham, where that movie comes out and all of a sudden women and young girls signing up for soccer leagues goes through the roof. So you see that it has tangible impact on how women can see themselves and do see themselves. And so I think that kind of art and that kind of representation can absolutely be either damaging if it chooses to be or really helpful. Not to create too much of a tangent, But which Ninja Turtle do you identify most with? I identify most with Leonardo. Care to elaborate? (laughs) Um, Leonardo is strong. He's smart. He's not as, like, nerdy as, like, a Donatello, which I'm a little bit of a nerd, but I don't have that much nerd in me. And he's not the partier like Michelangelo, but he's really the leader. And I definitely see myself as somebody who takes charge in difficult situations and has a good plan of action for whatever confronts me. Who or what inspired you to be a director? The movie A League of Their Own inspired me to be a director. I went to see it as a kid, and it was one of the first live-action films that I saw in theaters. And I remember leaving the theater and thinking, first of all, wow, this is what movies are. Like, I thought movies were kind of all about dudes or all about princesses, and now I'm figuring out that movies could actually be about women doing jobs, being the heroes of their own stories, and not be about a romance as a central storyline. And I didn't know that before because a lot of the movies that I'd seen prior to that were Disney or, you know, things where it was like a guy hero or whatever. So I just wasn't exposed to that. And then the minute I was exposed to that, I left the theater and I said, I want to do that. Not I want to be a baseball player and not have men go to war and I take whatever job they leave behind, but that I want to give other people the experience that I just had that was so affirming to me because it represented the life that I was experiencing, which was a life where I was the center of my journey and where I had many friendships with other girls who I interacted with and who I played sports with in school and who I hung out with on the weekends. And it felt like it was really the first movie that I ever saw that showed female friendships as a net positive. And that to me was really inspiring. So that's what made me want to be a director. And then I later learned, of course, that it was also directed by a woman, Penny Marshall. So that's always inspired me. I'm going to ask you a question you've asked on social media. Can you name five working female directors? Sure. Um, Ava DuVernay, Lexi Alexander, Reed Morano, Dee Reese, and let me put in Jennifer Fung. Can you name five more? Sure. Jennifer Lee, (laughs) Jennifer Hugh Nelson. Penny Marshall isn't working as much anymore, so let's put her as a player to be named later. Um, Jen McGowan, I'm doing a lot of the Jennifers right now. This is my, my Jennifer area. America Young and 
Alexis Ostrander. I'm impressed. That's almost automatic. Yeah. Why do you think female directors aren't as well known as male directors? I mean, I think for a lot of the same reasons that we kind of talk about female reporters not being as well known and female actors not being as high paid. When you live in a a society that is inherently patriarchal, which ours is still, men are more lauded for the work that they do. They get more awards. They get more money to make the projects that they make. They work with higher caliber talent as a result. They're more represented by agencies. It's a side effect of the fact that we live in a patriarchy, essentially. Great point. Uh, How far off would you say we are from having, say, a female Spielberg? I mean, in my mind, we already have as far as talent um, and ability, but as far as output and awards and a sense of cultural relevance to the world, I don't anticipate that in my lifetime, although I certainly hope that we see that. I think the closest that we are right now is Ava DuVernay, which thrills me in basically every possible way (laughs) because you really do have somebody who's making socially conscious films, which obviously Spielberg has done and she did with Selma. And now you have her going off to do Wrinkle in Time, which is the biggest budget movie a woman has ever had. So I think that's kind of fantastic and just blows my mind. So I hope that it ends up being her. But I also see a lot of really up and coming directors who are very exciting who could also take that place. Any names you'd like to mention? Reed Morano really comes to mind as somebody who is just a phenomenal director, came out of the cinematography world, still does cinematography, you know, directed Handmaid's Tale and um, Meadowland, which was probably my favorite film of 2015. I don't even think she's underrated because she just won an Emmy, but underknown, I think. uh, And I anticipate really big things for her. With Spielberg and directors like George Lucas, everyone seems to know their name. Yeah. Do you think it's just the underrepresentation or the budget? Or is there some other reason that there's no female director that's a household name? I do think it's that. You know, I think there's a reason why Sofia Coppola may be one of the more well-known ones because of, and I don't want to say that nepotism is how she's succeeded in her career, but it's certainly a name recognition factor that comes into play there, where if you say Coppola at all, people know that family. I really think it just goes back to patriarchy. I think it really just goes back to, no, they don't get the budgets. They certainly don't get the marketing budgets. They aren't getting the awards come award season, even though for me, like I said, 2015 Meadowland was my favorite movie and it starred Olivia Wilde and Luke Wilson and nobody saw it, you know, and it's like, okay, well, you know, if uh, Paul Thomas Anderson had made that movie, everybody would have seen it. So I think that there's definitely an element of restriction to women getting their films made. There's also a huge drop-off between a woman's first feature and second. And I forget what the statistic is, so I'm probably going to get it wrong, but I'll pretend. It's something like an average of seven years between her first and second feature, whereas I think men have something like an average of two or three years. The amount of output that is permitted even to a woman with a lot of awards. And the one that I always kind of go to for this is Deborah Granick, who's one of my favorite directors. She directed Winter's Bone. Prior to that, she directed Down to the Bone with Vera Farmiga, which won a bunch of Sundance awards. So she's had two movies at Sundance. Winter's Bone got four Oscar nominations. It made seven times its budget at the box office and was an incredible film, really launched Jennifer Lawrence's career. Nobody really knew who she was before that. And because she got an Oscar nomination off of it, it completely launched her career. And it's been seven years since Deborah Granick has had a movie out. 
I've certainly seen less successful male filmmakers come out of Sundance and get another movie deal in one or two years. And so to me, that's anecdotal, but again, indicative of a wider problem, which is just that women aren't getting their second movies made. Do you think female directors are under more scrutiny and face a higher standard from the studios? Yeah, I absolutely do. We see that a lot. Uh, One of my friends who is a director who has made big budget studio films and is working in TV now, for the longest time, she was basically told, oh, well, you can't work in TV unless you've shadowed on something. And she was sitting there saying, well, I've made $10 million features and you're not going to let me work on a $2 million episode of something? That's kind of ridiculous. I understand the time constraints of TV and that it's a very different medium, but you're still making filmed entertainment. If you have a good showrunner and good producers, who cares? <laughs> just, just give them the shot. Because I think that's the thing is, you know, you'll see men not as much today as you did in the past, but you have seen men in the past come off of doing short films or an indie feature or whatever and get hired into TV or get hired into their next project really quickly and really smoothly without having to prove themselves. And I think it feels like for women, they have to do a lot more proving. To pivot a bit, I'd like to discuss the recent scandals involving Harvey Weinstein, Louis C.K., Kevin Spacey and others. Do you have any general thoughts? (laughs) A long time coming, I guess. I mean, today it's Matt Lauer and Garrison Keillor, so those have just kind of come out. I feel really inspired by the women who are speaking out right now, and it seems like that's happening more and more across industries, and I am thrilled that there is some element of women being listened to in this case. I think that's something that's been missing because... Well, actually, all of the men you mentioned are men that I had heard about for at least a decade, if not more, with some of them, and wasn't surprised to hear any of these accusations. So there's some element of it that is, I think, less with CK than with the others who are kind of on a downturn of their careers, but there's some element of it that is depressing that it took this long for anybody to pay attention or listen or hear that this was actually happening and is a real problem and we should do something about it. But I'm also cautious to celebrate too soon. Not that I would want to celebrate any of this. It's just terrible things that have happened. I think the celebration is more just that women are being listened to, but more that I think it's too soon to be happy about this as we see Mel Gibson get his chance again in Hollywood. I'm cautious to say that this will have any long-term impact, and I would like to see what comes of it in five or ten years before I really have a full (laughs) thought process on, you know, what it all means. Absolutely. Personally, I'm surprised it went past Weinstein. I thought they were going to make an example of him, pat themselves on the shoulder, and say a job well done. But there seem to be new allegations every day. And not just allegations, but repercussions. People are losing jobs and movies. Yeah, I'm certainly happy to see that there are repercussions within the private sector. I haven't seen anybody get arrested yet, and I'm a little bit confused that Harvey is still out there, (laughs) to be honest. Just given the sheer number of accusations, I'm surprised that there isn't a country that has some sort of statute of limitations that can just say, hey, (laughs) you're, you're in prison now, buddy, while we figure this out. But, you know, I'm also sure that he is wealthy enough and intelligent enough to be wherever he needs to be so he won't be extradited. I'm happy to see that there are repercussions. I am still, you know, like I said, cautious about how I feel about what those repercussions are and how they play out. 
primarily because there's some statistic that 97% of rapists will never see a day of jail time. So until that statistic shifts, I'm still, like I say, cautious about feeling too glad about repercussions. I think that they need to come from the justice system. And I think that we need to be more strong in applying the laws that are already on the books. You mentioned jail time as an appropriate punishment. Is there any way for these individuals to atone? Or should they just go away and never come back? I think that's a question that should probably best be answered by their victims rather than myself. You know, I was not victimized by any of these men. I think me, even as a feminist woman, tossing my hat in the ring and saying yes or no really takes away agency from the victims. So I would say that that is really up to them, whether they feel as though anybody can atone for what's been done. I would say that there are probably situations that are more atonable than others. I don't believe that Weinstein will ever be able to atone for what he's done, nor do I think that there is anything he could do that would permit him to or get him to that level. And I just honestly don't know enough in depth about all, like there have been so many allegations against so many people. It would be a very long list of a lot of people doing a lot of different kinds of things. And I think it's really up to the victim as to when they come to a place and if they come to a place of forgiveness. And that can be personal for them too. They can say, I forgive this person, but I don't think that they should be out of jail. Or I forgive this person, but I don't think that they should get their job back. Or I don't think that society should forgive them just because I do. I think that that's a very personal thing that a victim should should have the right to do and not something that I should have the right to take from them or to decide for them. How do you interpret the public apologies made by these accused individuals? To date, I would say I interpret them as false and very well crafted by their PR folks, aside from the fact that they all seem to have forgotten to really apologize to anybody they've hurt. And I think that that, again, kind of speaks to highlighting the victims and what they've experienced and that that matters kind of more than whatever these guys are going to say. And we already know that their actions are gross, so I don't anticipate much more from their words, but I haven't seen any apologies that I've thought were well-crafted or even remotely honest. I agree. Do we need to approach these issues differently when concerning the allegations made by, say, Daniel Francesi against Bijou Phillips, or Terry Crews against Adam Bennett, one of the WME executives? How we approach the allegations should theoretically always be on a case-by-case basis, But in my mind, you know, if we are going with a feminist outlook on things and caring about humanity, I would believe victims and I would want every allegation to be taken seriously, you know, no matter who it's coming from or what the situation is. I believe that all allegations should be considered seriously and taken with that amount of respect and honored to honor the victim's experience and to do what you can to help them. With someone like Terry Crews, this is a large man with many muscles. Some people might be like, he can handle this himself. Should he? I think there are a lot of different things that people will say because the idea of victimization is uncomfortable. And even the idea of consensual sex in and of itself is something that's difficult for people to discuss openly, right? So the idea of assault We like to culturally find ways to make excuses for it, whether it's, oh, you know, she was wearing the wrong thing, she was drunk, well, he's big enough, he can take it, or, you know, she's big enough, she can take it. 
we can come up with any number of not especially well thought out, but certainly excuses for why somebody should be able to take it. But at the end of the day, sexual assault and abuse and harassment isn't really even about sex as much as it's about power and people making a power play. And there's nothing especially surprising about somebody who is in a position of power or who wants to be in a position of power assaulting another person who's also in a position of power. It's all just a big power game and not to say game dismissively, but to me that's uh, something that I think comes through in the stuff we saw with Weinstein too and with people saying, oh, well, you know, these women are were millionaires. Why didn't they say something? They're so powerful, A-list actors. Why didn't they say something? And it's like, well, some of them did, you know, and at the end of the day, no matter how much power you have, somebody can assault you and that's wrong no matter what. Not to make the argument that if you dress a certain way, you're inviting this kind of predatory behavior upon yourself. But in the case of individuals like Terry Crews and a lot of these women, they're very sexualized in the media. Do you think that makes it more likely for them to be targeted by a predator? It's hard to say without looking at any sort of statistics on that. I'm not sure. I will say certainly that what you're wearing or, you know, whatever has really nothing to do with whether or not you will be assaulted. I know people who were assaulted when they were five years old, and it's like it wasn't because of what they were wearing. So I will say that I don't know. That's sort of a deeper sociological question that our culture, like I said, still hasn't figured out how to talk about consensual sex. I don't know if we've gotten to a place where we're even comfortable with seeing men and women in sexualized positions in art, in media, and entertainment in a way that would allow us to talk about consent. I think we see a lot of these men and women in advertisements and movies and whatever presented in an objectifying way. So I think that's sort of its own conversation, separate from whether or not that makes them more likely to be assaulted. I think it certainly makes them attractive people, but I don't think that that and assault are necessarily statistically linked. Louis C.K. frequently discussed misogyny in his act, and at least superficially seemed to be an ally towards women like Tignataro and Pamela Adlon. Is that irrelevant? Does it make him more sympathetic? Or does it make his case far worse? I think it's relevant because I think how people present themselves and how they want to be seen is important when you start talking about the actions that they've taken and who they really are. Tignataro obviously distanced herself from him when she learned of those allegations and taken steps to not be invested in his career in a big way, the way that she was prior. So, you know, as far as more sympathetic or less sympathetic, I mean, it's a manipulative choice to present yourself as a feminist when you're kind of not really. So I don't know, I would say that it's just problematic. I do think that from what I've read, and I haven't seen these sketches, but from what I've read, apparently some of his comedy has joked about some of the things that he is alleged to have done to women. That, to me, feels <laughs> less sympathetic, like he's almost mocking the situation because he knows that he can get away with it, which is not cool. <laughs> but uh, beyond that, I would say it's really easy for us to lionize men who seem kind of remotely inclusive or feminist. But it's really easy for us to say, oh, these guys are so great because they're presenting women in a positive light or they're making fun of men for being sexist or whatever. But I think we have to look at the full picture at the end of the day. And if they are using women essentially as a way to further their career and still committing these crimes, then I don't really care what they've done in their career. They're still criminals. 
Do you think that's a common smokescreen that a predator might use? Sure. We know that uh, it's sort of the thing growing up where they say, you know, kids don't take candy from strangers, right? We think of that as just kind of a throwaway line, but if you parse that, essentially what that is, is that's a stranger trying to put themselves on a level with a child and trying to present themselves as harmless and friendly and somebody that they should get along with and like. And I think that this is certainly a similar thing. Do you think sexual predation is an epidemic specific to the entertainment industry? Or do these scandals and allegations reflect life for women in all sorts of different fields? It's in every field. It doesn't matter how much money they have. It doesn't matter how much power they have. It's everywhere. There is no industry that it doesn't touch. That concludes part one of my interview with the lovely Miranda Sajak. Please tune in next week when Miranda and I resume our conversation and cover topics like sexual misconduct in Silicon Valley, politics, how men can help, what to do when you witness misconduct, and many other topics. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Right now, though, I would like to take a moment to thank and acknowledge our many sponsors. Larry, we don't have a sponsor. What do you mean we don't have a sponsor? Not even Blue Apron? If you wrote podcast on a cardboard box, they'd sponsor it. You're trying to tell me we can't even get them. I haven't tried. I'll I'll reach out to them, but... You're really not good at this. You you sure you want to say this on the podcast? You got a point there. I love Blue Apron. It helps me cook or something. If we don't have any legitimate sponsors, I'd like to take this moment to thank off-brand Antacid. You really get me through the day. Thank you.